Well, as you're sitting down, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 33. And uh, we will unpack a good part of that in just a bit. How many of you watched the uh, big game last night? Most of you did. I would have to bring it up, right? We had already scheduled a party uh, party for the staff and elders. There wasn't time to get everyone together before Christmas, so we did a post-Christmas party, a New Year's party last night. And um, we, of course, we went ahead with it, didn't cancel it for the sake of the game, but of course we had the game on, uh, volume down, and uh, our host, Tim Sealing even turned it off when we prayed for the food. So I thought that was a pretty spiritual thing to do under the circumstances. Pretty laudable. It was a little bit hard, actually, Tim, but for the most, more and more, of course, you wanted to turn it off. But of course, for some reason, you can't. And you keep watching. We were together for the whole uh, uh, three and a half hours last night, you know, um, talking and laughing and then looking at the screen and then talking and engaging with each other and kind of frowning at the screen and then talking, engaging, enjoying each other's company, then weeping at the screen, you know. And and um, when it was over, as we were leaving, I nudged Raj Brooks. He's one of our elders. And I said, you know, it says a lot about our relationships that we can have such a good time in spite of such a bad game. <laughs> Amen. It didn't quench the spirit somehow, and that's a good thing. And it did say a lot about what we share together as your leaders. I, and it reminded me, as I was thinking about what I was going to be saying this morning, it reminded me why under it all, I've got three priorities as a pastor. That is the word, prayer, and people. The word, prayer, and people. A couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of the new year, I shared a New Year's message on Mary and Martha. How many of you were here for, for that message? A number of you were. I, as I said then, a good part of that message came from my candidating message that I gave, I guess it was uh, uh, going on five years ago now, when I told you what my highest priorities uh, as a pastor would be if you voted for me. That I'd focus on the, the word, prayer, and people. I told you two weeks ago after that, uh, when I preached on that, that after almost 30 years of keeping these priorities, I've fallen away from some of them over this last year for various reasons, up until the 40-day fast that I did last fall uh, for various reasons, but underneath it all, it was to get back into what I felt God wanted me to do. And so that message two weeks ago, as I said, really was as much for me as it was for you. Along with the elders, I'm ultimately accountable to the congregation, to the whole congregation, because you are the ones that voted me to come based on what I said I'd do. Which is why I told you about my New Year's resolution two weeks ago. That sermon was, as I said, was my resolution uh, this year, and uh, so is this one. After this week, we'll get on with the year, but this is a New Year's resolution, you might say, part two, which will complement Uh, what you heard two weeks ago. Once again today, for my sake, as much as yours, and you're going to see why I say that in just a bit, I'd like us to go back to our our, our roots uh, as a church, which will take us back to my deepest call as a pastor. And I'd like to do that by going from my candidating message uh, five years ago to the first message I ever gave here once we got on board 13 weeks after I candidated where I summed up a lot about what we talked about when I did candidate, of what you voted for when you asked me to come, and what I'm accountable to you to do. 
And this all, like nothing else, given the way I'm wired, you know, like the Spirit of God is kindled in me when I prepare the Word, and it comes through me, and it motivates me, and it changes me first. And so, like nothing else, what I'm about to do will motivate, motivate me to do it, to be uh, being honest with you, as I report to you on how I'm doing in a kind of uh, a year-end self-evaluation. Here's how that message went, my first one here. It was a very important one, and so I actually manuscripted uh, most of it to make sure you got it, to make sure I got it right. So what you're going to hear is pretty close to what I said. started like this. Well, turn like I just did. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 31. And then I said this. Some of you might remember. How's that for an introduction? Maybe you're thinking after all this time, after 13 weeks between candidating and your first message, you know, 13 weeks of not seeing each other, he just says, turn to the Bible. How impersonal. Couldn't you at least, you know, tell a story or crack a joke? And I said, well, I do have a sense of humor, as you're going to see. It's kind of dry, but it really is there. And Lord willing, it'll come out over the years. Sometimes it's so dry that I don't even know I'm being funny. In fact, Julie tells me, don't even try to be funny. It never works when you try, but it does come out sometimes. But uh, I began that way, though, uh, on purpose, without a joke, because that's what I always do. I always, and I will always, begin my messages by asking you just to open your Bibles. Just. Because my goal is the same as Christ. My goal as a pastor is the same as Christ, who came simply to bring us to the Father, he said. That was his ultimate priority. He said that in John 5. And so, after his example, under and through it all, that's my supreme priority. My goal as a leader is just, just to lead you to him. To lead you to God and not to me. And there is no quicker way to him, no better way that I know of, than through his, duh, through his word. And so, when I get up here and say, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus, or whatever it's going to be over the years, what I'm really saying is this. I'm saying, I'm not to be here to be a celebrity, to be a CEO. I'm not here to take over. No, I am here to, to pave the way, to get out of the way, so God can take over. I'm saying, God knows there's a whole lot I can't do. And I told you a whole lot about my weaknesses and why I need you, why we're all a team, why not one of us is ever smarter than all of us. Just, you know, stand me next to any pastor and you will see some glaring weaknesses. I'm not a normal pastor. And there are a whole lot of things in this church and in this community that many of you can do a whole lot better than I can. But this I can do. I can lead you to God. That's what you said you wanted me to do when you voted. And above everything else, that's what I want to do because that's all we need. And all that we could ever want to be flows from Him out of our intimacy with Him. And it's got to start with me. And of course, ultimately, it's, about all, it's all about influencing the world out of, out of that fullness, out of, uh, to the glory of God. It's about influencing the world out of the fullness of our intimacy with Him. And so under everything else, what I have to offer you is this. It's kind of just an invitation, an invitation to turn. Not to me, 
but to him. An invitation from, from one empty soul to another. An invitation from one hungry heart to another, from one sinful self to another, from one inadequate pastor to an inadequate pew sitter or parishioner to turn to him. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Today, as we begin our journey together, it feels kind of like we're, uh, you know, trekking out into the unknown, into the wilds of God's creation, into the wilds of God's will for our lives. And who knows what's going to come? How many storms, how many times will our lives will be on the thread? And uh, um, you never know, you know, of what he wants to become as a church, where he wants us to go. You never know where he'll lead when you really let him take over. I found that over the years. When you really get out of the way, it can be quite a trip. In fact, in the end, it usually is. In fact, you better get ready for anything. And it's probably not going to be exactly your agenda. In fact, it won't be. It's probably like the children of Israel felt in uh, Exodus 33. And I'd like to look at a kind of a slice of their journey today because as we seek to follow uh, him alone together, this passage shows us how to turn to him and how not to and why, why we so des- desperately need to. It's the chapter after, some of you may know, the chapter after the incident of the golden calf, which is where I'd like to begin. We hear about that back in chapter 32, verse 1, where they told Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us. Make a God for us who will go before us. Up until then, Moses had gone before them. He had gone before them, that is, up until he left them for the mountain, which we're going to see every pastor is called to do. And after he had been there on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that they asked Aaron to make a God for us, to make a God who will go before us, it says. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Question, was it Moses who brought them up from the land of Egypt? This man Moses, they said, brought us up from the land of Egypt, true or false? Right. Of course he hadn't. God had brought them up. In fact, God had told them that many times. Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God did it. But they didn't get it. At least not for long, because they went on to make a God of a man. You might paraphrase it this way. Moses brought us up. He's gone now. So now we need another God to bring us up. You see, the idolatry didn't begin with the golden calf. No, with the golden calf, they just made a new idol to take the place of the old one, the one that had disappeared. That You know, they just substituted one idol for another. Because all along, their faith, it got to the place that their faith was more in Moses than in God. And, and woe to the pastor who can't be God. That's the story of Moses' life. Just look at what happened to him again and again when he couldn't be God with the people. Given all the expectations that you have in your average church, even God couldn't be God. All the conflicting expectations. Which is why they crucified Christ. They did not, he did not meet their conflicting expectations. 
And so it is to this day. All along, their faith was in Moses. Like, and even uh, though his whole thing was that they turned to God, just like he had been doing. Which is why he said in Deuteronomy 10.20, one of my favorite passages, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, no man. To walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him alone. Who has done these great and awesome things, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And just a few weeks later, they were saying Moses did it. Because for all practical purposes, they had ended ended up clinging to Moses. And it happened again and again down through the history of Israel. Judges 8.22, for instance, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Did Gideon deliver them from the hand of Midian? Of course not. God had orchestrated it. So it would be unforgettable that, was, that it was him, 300 of them, thanks to the, the, the torches that represented to the enemy 300 people per torch, 300 of them wiped out an entire Midianite army. And then just a few weeks later, they were saying, you did it. And so Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you, and I will defend, and he will defend you and protect you. Just like I'm saying to you today on the threshold of our future together, I will not rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you, and I'll get out of the way. When Israel asked Samuel for a king, it was out of the same mindset of looking to men rather than to God. And so God said, they rejected me from being a king over them. For Samuel 8, 7. Why? Well, because Jehovah... The Lord God Almighty was not enough for them. So they wanted a king to go out before them, 1 Samuel 8, 20, that we also may be like the nations. And of course, so often, we in the 21st century are no different. To this day, so many churches are looking for the kind of leaders that the nation is looking for. Take charge leaders who will take them to the next level. That's what we saw again and again as we looked at openings on the Internet. We want a pastor who will take us to the next level. And I'm thinking, what agenda do you have? To the next level in the eyes, perhaps, of the nation. Celebrity, uh, you know, a celebrity pastor that will turn us into a celebrity church. That's a scourge on our nation. And what that means is this, not always, there are many wonderful exceptions, but often in the name of spiritual growth, in the name of, you know, growth by evangelism, what many churches are after is numerical growth. More people to fund bigger budgets, to fill bigger and more, you know, impressive buildings that, that, that we may be like the rest of the nation where success is measured by what you can see, by what you can count, money, people, and made possible by the gods, the corporate gods, the, the almighty, the all-knowing. CEO. That's not me. And I told you that when you voted for me. I've struggled this, with this myself over the years, as did Moses, with thinking, you know, that I'm supposed to be kind of like God, ever present, all knowing. Clarity of conviction that just makes decisions, and on we go with. Our glorious future. 
But Moses had been there. He had done that, and he wasn't doing it anymore. When he killed the Egyptian, he was taking God's agenda into his own hands. And God pulled him into the wilderness for 40 years to learn a hard lesson. And he did it several other times, and he had done that, and he wasn't doing it anymore. And one way you could tell he wasn't was that he prayed. He considered that to be a supreme priority. Most recently, just before they made the golden calf, he completely vanished for 40 days and 40 nights, a 40-day fast. It's like this disappearing act. What good leader would ever do that? Which he would never have done had he still thought he was supposed to be God. You know, at least you saw me once in a while when I was on my 40-day fast. Every Sunday and I was in the office. And then he went back, <laughs> interestingly, he went back to the mountain for another 40 days. And that was a supernatural fast because at 40 days, that's as much as the body can handle. So he went 40 more days and God intervened and he sought God for, you know, six more weeks, three months in all. And I was saying, well, maybe I should try that. But I was saying, not really, I can't afford to lose any more weight. You have to do it over Julie's dead body. And it says in chapter 33, it says that when he wasn't on the mountain, in addition to these long times away, he went to the tabernacle to pray every day. He prayed three times, that, in this case, that God would forgive them of that one sin, the sin of the golden calf. And his prayers saved the nation of Israel. Exodus 32.11, Oh, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? Exodus 32.13, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, but now forgive their sin. They don't deserve it, but I love them. Forgive them. Exodus 33.13, Now therefore I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, consider that this nation is your people. You've chosen them. And God rewarded the, 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 the persistence of that one man. Really, the, the, he rewarded the absence of that one man with his presence. With his presence among the people, as we'll see. Which leads to the inevitable question as we stand here on the threshold of our future together. Who knows what the future holds, but we need to have the right expectations. The inevitable question is this, just like I said when I candidated which would you rather have? The presence of a man or the presence of God? The agenda of a man or the agenda of God? The leadership of a man or the leadership of God? Are you willing to go countercultural? Now, pastors are called to be with the people. That's why my priorities are the word, prayer, and people. But we are not called to be omnipresent. We are equally called to be away from the people. By the way, only your mom ever came close to being omnipresent. Amen? We remember that on Mother's Day. It's like the Jewish proverb says, God could not be everywhere, therefore he made mothers. Many people think God could not be everywhere, therefore he made pastors, and you better be everywhere. It's not that Moses was a recluse. He really got to know them. In fact, it says in Exodus 18 that the people stood about Moses from morning to evening. He was dialoguing with them. He was counseling them. He was helping them. And he would uh, just be with them. And, of course, Jethro ended up saying this, You shall surely wear yourself out, both you and the people. They'll get tired of you. 
You're going to burn out, and then what will happen? And then his famous advice, Jethro to Moses, his father-in-law said, you be the people's representative before God. Let that be your ultimate priority. That is, you pray for them. And make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work that they are to do. That is, you teach them. And select out of all the people, able men who fear God. That is, you let them do it too, as our elders do. You know, omnipresent mothers are one thing, but omnipresent pastors are quite another thing. They're the ones that fall into adultery. They're the ones that burn out. Pastors are leaving the ministry in evangelical churches far faster than they're entering. And this is one reason. Because whether we realize it or not, when we try to do too much or be too much or to say too much or to, to lead too much, we're taking space that God would otherwise fill. In good part through others in the congregation and also directly. Which is one of many reasons why we are attracted to DCC. Because as I said when I candidated, there are a whole lot of things that a whole lot of you can do a whole lot better than I can do. Moses had been trying to do it all. And to this day, so many pastors that I know of, and this is the norm, they've done research on it, are running ragged. Scattered rather than centered. Running the rat race. Like I talked about 13 weeks ago when I candidated. And I said, I'm not going to do that. You know, impoverishing their lives at the center, like someone said, for the sake of an ever-widening circumference, often to be like the nation. Or to be like, you know, by the people, because they're trying to live up to everybody's expectations. Everybody but God's. But of all the people, the pastor had better be centered, not scattered. The pastor had better be rooted rather than forever restless so the church can stay centered on his will midstream of his spirit. Bottom line, Moses did spend a lot of time with the people, but he also had to say no to the people and no to many expectations of the people, even for long periods of time, so he could say yes to God and let God be God. And what came as a result of his prayerful absence? I'll tell you what came. A powerful presence. This is about as simple as it gets. It's like a longhorn sermon, but there's substance to it. How many of you have heard of longhorn sermons? Charles Swindoll said a longhorn sermon is where there's a point here, a point there, and a lot of bull in between. I've got a point here and a point there, and there's a lot, well, hopefully more substance. But point one, Moses' absence. Point two, God's presence. That's the heart of this message. Moses knew the connection between his absence and God's presence, between the practice of prayer and the nearness of God. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, 7, for instance, where he said, What great God, nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? What great church in God's eyes has a God so near as the Lord our God whenever we call on him, starting with me? Mostly with me in many ways. The nearness of God comes whenever we call on Him. And that's pretty good authority. It's right from the Bible. You see, you see it in our chapter for today as well. The people, as we've seen, had been looking to Moses to bring them up. 
to do everything, then to, then to this calf once Moses was gone, to, to go before them, forgetting that all the while, God himself, thanks to the priest on the mountain, God himself had been going up in their midst. They completely took for granted the difference that Moses was making. They they completely took for granted the powerful presence that his prayerful absence had made. It's kind of like what happened to me. Let's fast forward five years. Let me tell you a story that wasn't in that sermon, then we'll get back to the sermon. About a year ago, just before I went to Haiti on our, our, our medical missions trip, I was seriously questioning the difference all my time in the, in the word and prayer uh, was making. So much so that I'd fallen away from doing it nearly as much as I had been before. As I had been for, I guess, almost 30 years. And then we went to Haiti on our yearly medical mission. And Cindy McDonald, I wasn't the leader. Cindy McDonald was the fearless leader. And she is she gifted or what? And my job was just to... Teach, to pray, and to pastor. The word, prayer, and people. And so day after day, I'd walk up and down the clinic hallway just praying, and I was thinking, Lord, is it making any difference? Lord, I'm going to Haiti. I'm going to just do just that. And if you want me to continue, tell me so. And so day after day, I'd walk down, up and down the clinic hallway just praying. And I prayed for it, laid my hands on and prayed for every patient that came in. And some of them would start weeping as I did, even though they couldn't understand the language. And I tried to use a few phrases they did. And then I'd walk up and down the hallway just praying. To be honest, I was feeling kind of useless compared to these great doctors and nurses who, through whom God worked so powerfully on these mission trips and compared to all that Cindy was doing and all the other leaders. And I was wondering about my calling again there as I had been up here, not just... And I was asking, Lord, show me whether this is still what you want me to do. It's so unorthodox. And then, about halfway through the week, I hadn't told anyone about this. Our translator came up to me, Paris. Dear Paris, we've grown to deeply love that man. He's been working with the ministry for decades, probably in his 60s. He came up to me and looked me in the eyes and pulled me aside. And he said, you are a leader. And then he said it again, you are a leader. He said, you're not like the other leaders in in Haiti who love power. Who, who must be in charge. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. Who want to tell everyone what to do. But I know what you're doing. These people might not know it, but I know what you're doing. You, you are letting God be our leader. I look in your face, he said, and I see the face of Christ because you bring God to us. And that is all we need. And I said, I wonder if God's trying to say something. Later that year, the same thing happened. I was feeling very discouraged again about my priorities of the word, prayer, and people. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when I heard through the grapevine that, and I, you know, I've learned over the years to deal with criticism, but so much was going on that when I heard through the grapevine, someone said, don't tell me he cares about people because he prays through the pictorial directory. If he really loved people, he wouldn't spend so much time away from them. 
I want a pastor who loves people. That person had no idea how much time I do spend with people. But about the same time, one of our members was deathly ill. No one could figure out what was going, in, going on with him. They went all over the place, even to Mayo Clinic, but, but to no avail. And I, one day I was praying fervently for him. It was in the second hour of my prayer time. And um, out of the blue, like a bolt of lightning from heaven, a, a, a doctor's name came to mind. One who I hadn't thought about for years, and uh, I told him about that doctor, and he went to see him on Christmas Eve, just a month ago. A few weeks ago, he came up to me and said, Brian, thank you. That doctor saved my life. Wish I could tell the whole story. And God said to me, Brian, you may not see or hear of it. They may not see or hear of it or even appreciate it. Few of them probably ever will, but what... I do that kind of thing all the time in so many different ways, medically, financially, deepest of all, spiritually, when you pray through the directory. God said, what is the greater love? Loving them in secret before me when no one can see or loving them before men? And yet... Yet still, after he told me that just a few weeks ago, and after 30 years of praying through pictorial directories, I fell away again. Which is why I'm reporting it to you now, because you voted me in to be like Moses. And I've let you down. And this is a very serious thing. Most people do not understand this, especially these days. It's like Samuel said to the people of Israel, I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's my ultimate call. And I have sinned as your pastor. As, as your priest before God. And I have no one to blame but myself. And I hope you don't blame anyone but me. Not the church. Not the elders. Don't forget, I'm an elder. <laughs> You know, not the lack of snow, not even the Broncos. Well, maybe you can blame the Broncos. They'll be everyone's kicking boy. But I have no one one to blame but myself. And what I'm doing now with you, reporting to you, to the congregation to whom I'm ultimately accountable, what I'm doing now will help me the way I'm wired, the position I have. It'll help me more than anything else to just do it to get back to the heart of my calling as a pastor, to get back to my first message here. Here's what I went on to say, back to the message. I said, they had taken prayer for granted. They had taken for granted the difference that Moses' absence had made. The presence of God. And so God went on to teach them a lesson they would never forget. Exodus 33, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you, have, whom you, this is laced with cynicism, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, like they're saying, they don't want me, they want you, they want flesh and blood. They want a God who they can see. Well then, let them have you. Go to the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac that I will give, and I'll send an angel before you. I'll give you an angel. And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Go up to your land, flowing with milk and honey. 
For I will, but I will not go up in your midst, for you are an obstinate people. And when the people heard this sad word, it says, verse 4, they went into mourning, and none of them put on their ornaments. What did God do? He said, I will not go up in your midst. That is, he threatened to discipline his people by withdrawing his presence. And he does that to this day. If we get to Revelation, which I hope we do, it's the story of the church at Ephesus. If you don't come back to me as your first love, I'll take your candlestick from you. And you'll be a church in name only. He threatened to discipline his people by withdrawing his presence, the manifest presence that had been with them ever since the Red Sea. And suddenly, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Suddenly, you know, they were no longer, they no longer took it for granted. It says in verse 4 again, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. And now they really had a problem. But once again, Moses had a prayer. And prayer was the solution. Verse 12, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know by whom you will send, uh, whom you will send with me. And you have sent, you, you said, you said you'd send an angel, but Lord, that's not nearly enough. We need you. And you have said, I have known you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, don't take your presence away. Let me know your ways that I may know you even deeper. Let me know your ways that I may know you. He so wanted God's presence because he wanted to know him because intimacy with God was his deepest passion to know him and to make him known. And that was God's will for his people. Let me know your ways that I may know you. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Don't abandoned them. He was playing the role of Christ as the mediator, which every pastor is called to do. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And, he's, and then God said, my presence, it worked, shall go with you, and I will give you rest. He answered his prayer with his presence. For what nation has a God so near to it? What church is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And more than anything else, you need a pastor who calls on him. You might not know it, but I'm telling you, that's what you need. A pastor who's your representative before God. You be the people's representative before God and make known to them the way in which they are to walk. Now, I know I'm a little over, but I cut out a whole lot from this message. So I really have changed over the years. Here's how I closed it. I said this. It's like a wise pastor once said, and with this I'll close. He was uh, talking about church growth conferences, the ones, you know, that give you all these surefire uh, formulas for success. You get, you know, you become better managed, better organized, uh, and, and you do all these things, and you hear from all these celebrity pastors at these conferences, and I used to go to them all the time, but they're just depressing. Let me be honest with you, they're depressing. He wrote this, and it's not just for me. It's for you, too. Whether you're building a church or a family or a, a business or a life. This is for all of us. 
He said, I wish the message we heard from these supermen was not, you can build a huge church like I've done if you follow these principles. But something that would go more along these lines. In reality, I have only one thing to share with you. And it's what I've been sharing with you the whole morning. It has nothing to do with using our church experience as a model. He was one of the ones that was speaking there at that conference. It has to do with walking so closely with God that you begin to know exactly what His call on your life looks like. Cultivate the ability to be still in His presence so that you are able to discern His will, hear His voice, and seek His game plan for your life. That game plan is unique and is not anybody else's game plan. Don't do what, I, what we've done except the listening to God part. Don't buy a fleet of buses or overhead projectors or advertisements in the paper just because we did it. The best thing, the only thing you can do in order to be successful is to find out what God is doing and join up with Him. I guarantee you that what He is doing with you will be different from what He is doing with us. Don't ever, ever try to be a Bill Hybels or a Rick Warren or a John Wimber or another celebrity leader. Be yourself. Being yourself takes a lot of work. It means standing daily in God's presence and allowing His Spirit to scrutinize every nook and cranny in your life. If you are unwilling to do that as a pastor, you might as well sell insurance or pump gas because God can't use you as a leader for eternal purposes. Or He'll use you in spite of yourself. The calling is not about doing your thing or my thing. It is about doing God's thing. Starting with your own personal obedience, growth, and willingness to go wherever He leads, whatever they say. If you can latch on to that, you will have more value than if you read a hundred books and attended a thousand church growth seminars. I read that years ago, and that's the last church growth seminar I attended. I find it disappointing that no, quote, church growth expert is giving that message. And then he concludes, as I will today, as I did then, and as I will today. By quoting Jeremiah 9.21, the bottom line he said is this, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. I think I'd call that growing intimacy with God. That he understands and knows me. For that is what I delight in. Father, I want to thank you that you do delight in uh, being with us in spite of ourselves. I thank you that um, for all that your presence brings, that it's not always our agenda, that sometimes nothing happens, that sometimes numbers go down just like with Christ. Help us to submit to your will. I thank you that just like we sang, strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord, when we wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord. And so I say today before all these witnesses, I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord, on you, O Lord our God.
You reign forever, our hope, our strong deliverer. You alone are the everlasting God. You do not faint. You won't grow weary. Father, we look to no man anything like we look to you. We will wait upon you, Lord. Say it with me, people. We will wait upon you, Lord. Say it like you mean it. We will wait upon you, Lord. We will wait upon you. Thank you that we can do this together in the corporate intimacy that we have as we worship you, standing before your throne, and as we listen to you as we have been seated at your feet. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is Benevolent Sunday. If the ushers could come forward, this is a time when we show the needy his presence in a very concrete way by helping them out financially and in... uh